Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour. Driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition. It's Rosie on the House. Wake up, sunshine. Open up your sleepy eyes for me. Oh, yeah. There you go. Good morning, Arizona. That's the perfect Saturday morning 7 a.m. song. That just fires you up, man. Once you jump out of bed, comb your hair, put on your britches, and get something done. And it's a holiday weekend. We're going to have some fun today. We always have fun when I get to dial in the topic of history. And you can't have a President's Day weekend celebration without talking about history. And at Rosie on the House, you can't talk about history without having Dr. Dean in the studio. Good morning. Good morning. Dr. Dean, thank you for joining us. You know, a song about Sunny, I'm not quite sure it's sunny out. It's coming. Quite yet. It's coming. That's... You have to think positive. It's going to be a beautiful day. (laughs) It is. Well, we have in the past, on a couple occasions of President's Day weekend, wanted to talk about the White House. And if you're a regular subscriber to our newsletter, you know that's exactly what we're talking about today. And we have put together a compilation of interesting, compelling information about the history of the White House that we're going to talk about here with Dr. Dean at 7 o'clock. We've got Jay Harper coming at 8 o'clock to talk about outdoor living. We're sure, right? And we are sure. <laughs> we are sure. We have confirmed that. I spoke that. with him yesterday. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 9 o'clock hour. That was my fault. We are going to tell you stories I visited with contractors who have been in the White House, who have been at Camp David, who have been on the roof of the executive wing that had laser targets on their chest. Just a mechanical, I'm just here to replace filters. (laughs) So we've got a lot of great stories. And interesting is everyone I talk to says, now we've we've signed documents. We can't tell anything about working there. I said, okay, just tell me the story. I don't know, I don't wanna know who the administration was. I don't know when you were there, and I don't even know your name, and I won't ask it. I just want the stories. So we got a lot of great stories at 9 o'clock. And at 10 o'clock, we'll be talking about your house, your home, your castle, and the art of drinking and bathing in clean water. So let's get to it. Dr. Dean, the White House. Yes, the White House. Uh, 132 rooms, 35 bathrooms, uh, six uh, different levels. Um, 412 doors, 147 windows, 28 fireplaces, eight staircases, three elevators. This is a huge building that doesn't look all that big. 55,000 square feet. Yes. But if it's six levels, that means at least three levels are underground. Right, right. Originally, there was not a basement to it, but they, uh, uh, during the, uh, one of the renovations periods, they dug out and they put a big, uh, deeper foundation underneath it and, and opened up those spaces because that's where they had the secure rooms and that kind of stuff down and underneath we, all that. We've been asked about that in the 
past, you know, how feasible is it to put a basement under as well? If you got the money, you can do anything you want. <laughs> I've, right. I, I've put, I've put three basements under yeah. existing homes. Yeah. You got three hundred million taxpayers. You can do about anything you want to that home. Well, there, there you go. That, well, almost. And and I called some dear friends of ours in in Cabin John, Maryland, who are big design, build, remodelers, and custom home builders. Uh, Liz and Anthony Wilder, and I asked them. I said, "Look, it's fifty five thousand square feet. What would it cost to build that today?" And they said, "Well." Not counting all the security measures, because we have absolutely no idea, and not counting it's located in the most impossible location in the world to get materials to. If we were to build a 55,000-square-foot replica of the White House out in the middle of the country where we had room to stage things and we didn't have to line delivery trucks up Pennsylvania Avenue for three miles, approximately... $1,600 $1,600 a square foot. $1,600 a square foot. A square foot. And the going average for square footage? You yeah. can buy a decent merchant home in Phoenix right now for about 150 bucks a foot. Wow. And we're not talking about all the expensive interior in the White House either. This is just the bones, just the house. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, including, not including a lot of the... $88 million. Well, when you divide that between 333 million taxpayers. Oh, a bargain. So, well, it tells you how big a bargain we got when it was built originally. Yeah, what, uh, $275,000 approximately was the original cost of the, the executive mansion? And, I, and, I, and, and it was, it's, a, it's a sandstone block. And as I understand it, George Washington was trying to build Mount Vernon. But he didn't have the money for the sandstone. He plastered the house, and then he carved in all the little lines to make it look like block sandstone. The, Mount, the, Mount Vernon is a plaster home. The, the, with the grout lines that are fake. With the grout lines that are fake. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So, And, you know, Mount Vernon to, to the White House, that's a pretty good little chariot ride. And Washington was the superintendent on the White House. Right, right. Oversaw the construction. He laid the uh, the, founder, the cornerstone foundation uh, part because he was a Freemason and that was his job. Uh, and so out there, a little bit of ceremony, pomp and circumstance, set the stone. And then it took, what, eight years or so to build? He never lived in it. No. In fact, uh, Adams was the first to, to move into it uh, during our second president. And it wasn't done then. No, they still have stuff to do. And it didn't look like it does today. Uh, there were uh, parts that were added on in other administrations, uh, including the kind of the more iconic facades with the portico, and those things were all added later. Uh, it was otherwise just a pretty plain-looking country manor-type house. Okay, Romy, let me ask you this. Okay. You're founding a country. And I have a question, too. You're founding a country, and you've decided— this little swamp-laden area is where we're going to build the capital. This is where the center of government will be. How do you pick out the lot for the the king of this new country? How do you find that lot? Rosie certified partner realtor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Do- Dr. Dean, I, who? I wouldn't have. 
I, I would, I'd have gone over, like you said, he was building on Mount Vernon. I would have gone and built it higher on higher ground instead of just out there in the flat. Oh, I would have built it where Arlington is, overlooking the whole area up high. And the pictures that you see from when they did build it, it was mucky. It, well, it was I a mean, swamp. There was no landscaping. It was this building in the middle of mud. So Visionaries. Uh, These guys were uh, visionaries. Well, so, well, they, well, I think were they wrote the Constitution. They That's could do anything right. they wanted. They, they right if you that. want to build a beautiful city, a capital of a, of a, of a new republic, yes. the first person you call is somebody from the old world who <laughs> builds those large, big cities – and so uh, you hire somebody from France, uh, and we get uh, Pierre Lafont comes over. Oh, yeah, uh, yes, Pierre. Yeah, he comes over, and he uh, he's a a planner and a designer, and he lays out Washington D.C. as the capital. And Washington and he had had conversations about what this thing should look like with some grand avenues and some grand uh, uh, circles or places where people could be dispersed uh, with line of sights between the White House and the Capitol. And he, so he came up with kind of a master plan. And there's that swampy land over there. Why don't we put the White House right over there? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and hence the name LaFont Plaza. Uh-huh. Yes. And, and to this day. To this, you always remember certain periods of your life, and you can think of events, and you know exactly where you. To this day, I still remember landing in Washington D.C. for the first time, and seeing the monuments as you're flying in, mm-hmm. taking a cab down to the hotel, which was right downtown, getting in the metro. What isn't it called the metro? Getting in the metro, and Jennifer and I took a ride to Lafont Square. Came up out of the subway onto the mall, and I broke down in tears. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I've got a, a picture, childhood picture of a police officer directing traffic in that uh, because he was out there dancing and everything. My parents took a picture like in 1972 when we first visited there. Still vivid memories for us. You know, mine wasn't so much the first time I went as part of growing up. You guys took every homeschooled kid graduating eighth grade and took him to D.C. as part of the graduation gift with that tied into your, you know, remodeling. Big 50. Advantage, uh, yeah. yeah, groups and everything. And, I, I mean, I had a lot of fun, but I didn't realize it until uh, fast forward over a decade. When we went back and we took a couple people from the office, uh, Jimmy and Melissa. Oh, that's right. And we were standing. That was at, Snowmageddon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I had another story about that. Yeah, but it. What? So I had already been there and I had seen it, and I was just like, "Yeah, I've been whatever." We're standing at the Washington Monument, you know, the big tall tower. We're trying to decide: Are we going to wait nine hours in this line to go <laughs> up and see it, or are we going to go do something else? And Jimmy just says, "Well, I, you know, I'm not going to stand here. I'm going to go see the White House." I'm like. It's right there. Where? So turn around. It's right there. And just like frozen time. I mean, just. Well, the thing I remember. awe inspiring. You know, there it is. Jennifer, what do you remember about his first trip to D.C.? <laughs> I remember coming back to the motel one night. And, With a and, note from and the, the, and the concierge walks up to me and says, there's a report someone's throwing water balloons out your, bed, out your room Allegedly. window. <laughs> Allegedly. Our practical joker, yes. All right. So, Dr. Dean. A man from France, familiar with designing beautiful cities, is retained by the founding fathers 
to come over by boat and let's design a city. We're there in our part of our story talking about the White House in Washington, D.C. with Dr. David Dean, assistant professor of history at Grand Canyon University. Yes, sir. Um, I always, that assistant always throws me because you don't look like an assistant. You don't act like an assistant. You have the, you don't, your knowledge surpasses the assistant title. Uh, it's just an academic rank thing. When, uh, when we get back right after this, we're going to talk the White House. Feel free to join the conversation if you've got a story as well. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. So just like most construction projects, the superintendent of the White House never lived in the finished project. I mean, majority of your superintendents don't end up living in the <laughs> buildings and homes they construct. Unless until the bill's paid. <laughs> yeah, right, right. If you could go bring George Washington back today and bring him into the White House and take him into, let's say, Nixon's bowling room, what do you think he would think that room was without any explanation to what it is? <laughs> he, would probably, he would probably wonder about it. Of course, you know, one of the interesting things about George Washington is that he was also a predominant distiller of whiskey. So the bowling alley would be a great place to store barrels of whiskey. <laughs> 1799, he produced 11,000 gallons of whiskey. So our, our founding president uh, probably would have found a use for it. <laughs> and, you know, he was really quite the architect hobbyist. I mean, he, he basically designed Mount Vernon. Right. And it was a very, very creative design that he used for the, the barn and the s- distillery operation mm-hmm. and the house. Mm-hmm. But he did not design the White House. No. Um, a guy by the name of James Holbin, uh, uh, Holbin was the uh, architect of the uh, White House. He was an Irish immigrant who'd come here, um, and Washington had liked him, had seen some kind of the stuff that he had done before, and they had a competition. And Washington kind of said, well, you should put in for this competition. And then as soon as the entries came in, Washington said, oh, we got a winner already. <laughs> <laughs> and it was his friend uh, uh, Holbin. And, and that started a good relationship between the two. Hoban uh, took the ideas of the president, something modest. Lafont wanted a, uh, a gigantic palace. And Washington thought that the, the, the executive mansion of this new republic shouldn't be that, that opulent kind of thing. So a country house, an estate kind of thing. And uh, um, Hoban had had some experience with that, had seen some similar examples in Ireland and whatnot, and he brought those ideas over. Um, and it was very in vogue to use this kind of Georgian, Palladian-style house. There's a lot of symmetry to the number of windows on each side of the doors, the proportions going up. Um, it's uh, three stories on one side, two stories on the other. Uh, it was designed to be... I don't, modest isn't the right word, but to be appropriate <coughs> as the executive's house. Which is an interesting perspective because you've just won independence from an entire European culture of the leader of every country gets to build a new castle. And and Washington recognized that. That, that yeah. was the moment. But he's not building a castle. He's building a capital city. I know. And, and that that, in my mind, is just so key in how we are so different from every other country. Right. Remember, Washington was sworn in as president in New York City. The uh, the capital of our country was Philadelphia, New York City, long before 
Washington said, let's go to this in-between place between the North and the South. Let's carve this out, this district out, and then let's put our capital here, neutral of all the state's interests. Something kind of special and unique. And so... So Hoban, the architect, had done a building or two, I think a courthouse in South Carolina or something mm-hmm. that General George saw. And he says, I like that. So he lets Hoban win the contest to design. And I think the White House pretty well, if you get a rendering of what Hoban drew, it's pretty darn close. It, it's pretty darn close. Again, it's uh, um, it's rendered in, rendered in that uh, Georgian style. Um, the Palladian style had, again, symmetry and proportion. It was a kind of a, a cross pattern, so a front to front door, back door kind of axis, and, a, and then a side door, side door axis with a, an equal number of windows on each side, a center entry on both sides, uh, on the front and the back. And, and that was pretty much how an estate country estate would be. And you can imagine at the time, there was nothing around it. I mean, Washington, yeah. D.C. had cows roaming around the streets even after the White House was built. Um, it was still a very rural place, and it fit in that rural place. He decides to not take a third term, retire to Mount Vernon, uh, which I think is a much more appropriate place, just overlooking the river. I mean, I, Mount Vernon's a beautiful place. It, I think it absolutely is gorgeous. Um, and the and and the finished DC is beautiful. It just it really like Romy says it really did take a visionary to turn what was the swamp into what we've got today. Yeah. So the first occupant of the house Adams. President Adams the second president. Okay. Moves in and it's still not finished. Um there's a you have to understand there's a couple of floors, right? The first floor is the state floor. So that's the public spaces. And then the upper part is the residence. And he can move into portions of the residence, but part of it was still being finished. And Hoburn continued to oversee that until it was somewhat completed by the end of the Adams administration, although um, the Madison had a little bit more to do and everything. And- uh- for everyone else that was wondering what 11,000 gallons of whiskey would do, that's enough for everyone in Peoria and Surprise to have a four-ounce shot. Cruise it through the Arizona Hour with Sanderson Ford and Rosie on the house. Makes it worse thinking of her, thinking she'll forgive me. It must be the whiskey. And I said four ounces. Well, a typical shot is only 1.5 ounces. I said four, but that's a typical serving of wine. You ever seen the red Solo cup, how it's got all those different ridges? Those are actually measurements. The bottom one is if if someone's ordered a shot of whiskey, that's your measurement. The second ridge is your four ounces for wine, and then the top is your eight ounces for Went to the University of Toby Keith to learn that. (laughs) Well, well, well. Things you learn when you serve crawfish. I always thought that that was how, 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 how to fill it when you threw the... Ping pong ball into it. It's a whole other thing. And and I can remember in my history, I think of reading Washington's biography. I mean, he actually sued Congress at the end of his term 
to be reimbursed for all the wine he had served at Mount Vernon. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he entertained a lot, a lot yeah. out of his own pocket. You know, he loved Mount Vernon, and when he was called away to to serve in the Continental Army, and then he was reluctantly called again to be president and whatnot, all he talked about was, I want to be back home, my beloved Mount Vernon. Yeah, well, that's a pretty special place. So we've talked about locating the site for the White House, as well as the layout of all of Washington, D.C. We've talked about the setting of the cornerstone. We've talked about the fact that George Washington never lived in it. Uh, The second president moved into it before it was finished and pretty much stayed in that state until the British kind of got their nose bent out of shape. Well, the nose didn't get get their nose bent out of shape. We did, about the British. Um, (laughs) What was happening at the time after the Revolutionary War France and England go to war with each other, and they were going to war all the time. And what was happening is we as entrepreneurs were selling things to both sides uh, and providing, you know, naval merchant type stuff. And the British started to kind of intervene in that, and they would capture our ships and they would confiscate our goods as war measures. They would even take our sailors and put them on their ships and almost as as slaves on their ships to work their ships. And so we wanted just free neutral rights trade and the British kept interdicting on that. And so we finally said, enough is enough. Uh, We passed uh, several acts to say, look, we're just not going to trade with you. That wasn't good enough. And so we said, we're declaring war on you. We will be neutral and you will respect our rights. War of 1812. Which is not a one-year war; it's a three-year war. <laughs> but the it starts war of eighteen, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it starts with eighteen twelve with the declaration of war, and it's really a three-front war. There's a, a war that goes on in the north in the Great Lakes area uh, as um, the British stirred up uh, Native American animosity against American settlement. Then you have the Chesapeake uh, Front, which is the kind of the blockade of Washington, D.C., and eventually uh, the attack Washington, D.C. And then the southern uh, Florida to New Orleans as the British were trying to make an inroad out of their, their Caribbean squadrons were trying to make an inroad to interdict trade coming out of uh, Florida and New Orleans and whatnot. And so three-front war. And old Andrew Jackson kicked their butt down there. Several times. Battle uh, of New Orleans. That's right. <laughs> and Chalmette. One of the most interesting tours you can do on a trip to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Make sure you see the World War II Museum and make sure you take the paddleboat cruise out to Chalmette. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great. Two great things. Okay, so we're in a war and they decide they're going to blockade D.C. Mm-hmm. What made them decide to get off their boats and come burn our house down? Well, they were, they were again, fairly ticked off at us. Uh, <laughs> and an earlier incident, a year earlier, up in um, Toronto, uh, present, uh, at the time it was called York, but there were fort there called Fort Toronto. And uh, one of our generals, General Zebulon Pike, put together an expedition of about 1,600 guys that sailed across the lake and invaded it, that little town, and captured the fort. And in that capturing of the fort, the British blew up the magazine there and killed the general. And the soldiers were upset by the loss of their general, so they put the town to the torch and burned down York, or what is to Toronto. And so in retaliation, they said, fine, we're going to burn down Washington, D.C. <laughs> so they burned the Capitol, and they uh, uh, went to the White House. And Madison was not there at the time, but Dolly Madison was 
holding the fort down, so to speak, at the White House with instructions that if they get too close, leave. And so at the last minute, she up and left, and British soldiers came into the White House hoping to capture an executive or something, but they just found warm food in the kitchen still. So they enjoyed a meal and poked around in the uh, 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 the White House there for a while and then said, all right, guys, put torch it. We're out of here, and burned it down. And... A part of my research on this is I watched Jackie Kennedy's tour of the White House mm-hmm. in 1962. That's still on YouTube. You can still see it. Mm-hmm. And she gives Dolly Madison credit for saving some of the oldest pieces that are still hung in the White House today. In her evacuation, she actually took furniture and paintings and mm-hmm. you know saved them from the fire. One was an important uh, painting of George Washington. And they didn't have room for the whole frame and everything. So she had them take the canvas out of the frame and roll it up and tuck it under their arms and, you know, as they were, as they were leaving. So then, the, then you have the choice to make. Do we rebuild it in its current site or do we start anew? Right. And they decide they're going to rebuild it. They said, and, and they said, hey, um, Architect Hoban, uh, how'd you like this commission to come down here and, and help us rebuild it? And so he did. Now, it took eight years to build the original one, and he did the rebuild in three years because he kind of took some shortcuts. But uh, he was able to get it back together so that um, when President uh, Monroe was able to kind of move back into it, uh, our fifth president. And then Thomas Jefferson, who's our, our who third president. Who always kind of seemed prissy to me. Yeah. <laughs> am, am, am I misjudging the man? Uh, he was... His own man. Let's just go. It seemed like every time something important needed to be done in Washington, D.C., he was back at Monticello with a headache. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I certainly respect his writing, but it seemed like he he was a little on the soft side. He needed to retire to do that kind of great thinking and whatnot. Okay. Uh, Um, But Jefferson, uh, again, he didn't like the pretense of the White House and whatnot. In fact, uh, on his inauguration, uh, he actually— uh, you know, walked down to the Capitol to do his inauguration. I had breakfast at the Blair House on his way, you know, uh, just was a kind of a very informal guy. Didn't like the pretense of it. Um, Neither did he like the outhouse. No, he didn't like that the president had to go outside <laughs> to uh, kind of cold in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it time. can be kind of cold on that seat. <laughs> uh, so he did, uh, he did bring in water closets upstairs. Um, we had other... Uh, Presidents made changes. President Fillmore brought in a flush toilets and uh, running water. And we're talking the eighteen fifties, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, central heating comes in. Running hot water comes in the eighteen fifties. Electric lights were added in nineteen oh one. So these were some of the the changes that were made. It was actually Teddy Roosevelt that gives it the name, the White House, because that by that time they're whitewashing all that sandstone to kind of keep it that bright kind of white color. And, and the so, additions had been done in a Maryland sandstone, which kind of a pinkish. So right. it was dual tone. And- so to make it pretty, they, they whitewashed it, and, and he calls it the White House. And Roosevelt adds the East Wing and the West Wing that are the more executive office stuff uh, to it uh, so that the president now has to walk to work down the little colonnade over to the East, uh, the East Wing or the West Wing. The East Wing is where the First Lady's offices are. Now, here, here's an, do you know when air conditioning was introduced into the White House? This is a very interesting piece of history. We have a president shot. 
He's moved to the White House. They set it up as a hospital. And to cool the room, giant blocks of ice are brought in on the floor below, and fans are used to circulate the cool air to his room. The president was Garfield, mm-hmm. and the engineer that designed the air conditioning was Robert E. Lee. Interesting. It is interesting. It is interesting. The innovation of air conditioning in the White House. Well, they had to also make modifications during FDR's uh, uh, tenure because uh, he was in a wheelchair, and this was not an accessible building. So they had to make put some ramps in and do some things to help that. Uh, but the war years, the Depression and the war years, really took its toll on the White House. Truman had some hilarious things to say about the White House. When, well, he, when he moved in, it's about ready to fall down. Right. It had all those creaks. The floorboards were soft. He was afraid at one point in time a guest would fall through uh, <laughs> uh, from the upper stairs down below. So he went into um, a renovation mode and had to because it was falling apart. I mean, he, he wrote best and said, this place is haunted. Haunt, yeah. That, that's how he was describing all the creaks and the shaking. Uh, yeah, it was a... It was pretty. In fact, the commission who came in to survey it said, "You know, Mr. President, we should maybe just tear this thing down and start all over." It was that bad. That bad. Which is interesting because they have. When was when did Truman get in? Because it it couldn't have been more than thirty, forty years from Taft. And I understand they had to bring in some serious structural reinforcements for Taft's <laughs> for bathtub. bathtub. That's right. <laughs> yes, a large man and all that water in that tub. Well. <laughs> um, Truman takes office in 47, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, in 44, uh, but it wins Taft presidency. Would have been in the 10s, um, right? Yeah, years. so about 30 years later. Um, and so he starts a renovation project. Uh, they move out across the street, and uh, the family does, and they basically gut the interior of the White House, insert a steel beam structure skeleton inside the walls, and then rebuild the floors and everything back to the original floor, or similarly to the floor plans, with the open state rooms on the first floor, the the blue room, the green room, those, and then the the. Um, the residence's parts of the Lincoln bedroom and those things upstairs recreated inside that, that's that framework. We got the white house built in the 1790s for a quarter million dollars. We remodel it in 1950 for 5.7 million. Right. And I still think that's a pretty good deal. I mean, basically emptied the building, left the outside shell up and recreated the entire house from the inside out. Right. And and that's a tough job. And imagine the preservation aspects because there were uh, fine Scottish stonework and carvings over some of the doors, uh, the fragility of all that masonry and the, of the exterior. Now you get that without cracking it and breaking it and all that stuff. And you got all those contractors moving through his stuff, trampling around, and it didn't destroy the delicacies that you see on the outside. Uh, it was quite a thing. And then they put a, a, a balcony in, which was very yeah. controversial. Yeah, Truman, Truman didn't have the architectural inclinations of George Washington. Or Jefferson or anybody else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he is a little, I guess like me, claustrophobic. Right. And there's just no way to get outside from where he is. Right. So he plants a balcony on the outside of the Right. So the the circular portico on the one side... um, he said we should have access from the inside, the interior spaces of the of the living quarters outside, and so he put a balcony on it. And everybody was up on their arms because it would, it would, it would, it would upset the verticality 
of the house. The house had this kind of rising verticality to it. And all of a sudden you put this line across on that portico. It changes the look of it. But a lot of the presidents like it, and it certainly brings in that fresh air kind yeah. of thing to that moment. So. And I don't know if this is serious or a joke, but if you look it up on Zillow, <laughs> they say it's $420 million is this estimate. It says it's currently off the market. But that that monthly payment, one point seven million. They do that by comps. Are other White Houses around? Did they? You right. know, they checked out. Uh, you know, the well versus Buckingham Palace versus you know the the Trudeau Mansion up in uh, Canada. What do they do for comps on that? Do they do the neighborhood? Oh or they boy, do that's tough. Similar estates, and that that verifies at least a one thousand dollar per foot construction cost. Right. Not counting the security and everything else. Right. And I guess there's some pretty extensive security. There is. Uh, the security measures on, well, you've got to protect the president. You've you know, got to. And his family. Look uh, at all the windows in that building. All Pella, by the way. And all bulletproof. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think uh, I read somewhere that, that they'll stop a bullet shot from, what, 2,100 feet away and remain intact. Uh, a high-powered uh, bullets, and so pretty incredible. Uh, now, there's the usual stuff like Secret Service, and you got to have an ID. And we'll talk more security after this because we can do a lot of things at Rosie on the House, but we can't stop that clock. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Sixteen hundred Pennsylvania, yeah, yeah. It's our house. Come on, turn it up. Uh, you're gonna be in DC. You can come on in. Come on in. Got a ranch in this branch of the government. Here this morning on President's Day weekend at Rosie on the House, we're talking about your house, the house you own, the White House, 55,000 square feet, the home where our president lives. I understand when Trump first got elected, he said, this place is a dump. And he, he was commuting from his penthouse in New York by helicopter back and forth, and I guess that didn't go over very well. But a lot of presidents have put a personal touch on the building. Uh, I think that's part of it. You have to add something, don't you? I don't know. Um, Nixon puts in a one-lane bowling alley in the basement. Uh, Gerald Ford... I still want to see... We're going to be there when... When George comes back? Yeah, and say, hey, what do you th- what's his first guess that a bowling lane is for? What's the purpose and function of this the you know structure here. What do you think his answer would what, be? <laughs> what would he think of Gerald Ford's outdoor swimming pool? What would he think of Ronald Reagan's exercise room? What would he think of Bill Clinton's music room? Uh, what would he think, or, or Bill Clinton's hot tubs that he had installed, or the Bushes redid the family theater and added dog kennels? I, I mean, they all make their touch. I understand Barack Obama converted a tennis court and put some backboards up on either end. Right. So I guess you're allowed to go in and kind of personalize it so one then, way or another. What did Trump do? Do we know? I don't know, but I just remember when he first got in office, he said, this place is a dump. I'm going to live in my own house. Much more opulent uh, surroundings than he uh, is used to at the Trump Towers than at the White House. And didn't the residents of Trump Towers kind of 
protest and say we're really tired of the security here. Yeah, we, yeah. We'd like our house back. And and the front street, yeah, there was a whole yeah. bunch of stuff that went on with that. But because security was a big issue of uh, I guess. You know, there. So the White House has, you know, important security measures. Well, we do. And I've known some of those people on security detail, and it, it's very interesting. I mean, they, they only let Secret Service, you can only be assigned to the same person for so long, so there's never an attachment that happens. And the rotation of security personnel is, is pretty extensive. Well, I think America owes John F. and Jacqueline Kennedy a, a big thank you. They really, upon getting elected and moving in, Jacqueline really took over a massive renovation project of the home, turning it into a museum. Right. Well, you know, it's a it's a collection of a, of different kinds of furniture from all these different years, and and and, and the artwork, and everybody making these kind of changes. Uh, she really went on a kind of a. a uh, a concerted effort to conserve and preserve and to recollect uh, and and put it as America's house, to showcase it as such. Um, and then through that process, she got the uh, Historical Commission to actually recognize it as a museum. So it gets that designation of a museum certification. And then she shares it on national television. Right. On uh, Valentine's Day, 1962, she had a national broadcast, which everybody tuned into. Cause 80 million people tuned in to watch on ABC News. I do miss that about TV when everybody watched something and would share it. You know, we don't have that. There's so many choices now. But can you imagine the whole country just sitting there hanging on her every word? And you can still see it at YouTube. So I would encourage you, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It'll, it's a great lesson on the White House. Right. And with the preservation, it prevents all that stuff from showing up on eBay in case somebody wants to buy the Lincoln bedroom or something like that. All that that make all that illegal now that it's a preserved uh, museum. And, and, and Mrs. Lincoln actually did do a lot of that. I mean, in destitution, she was actually, as I r- recall in history, she was actually selling a lot of the stuff. Right. Right, to make a, a few extra dollars along the way, because they don't pay the president a whole lot, considering all the stuff that he has to do. Uh, and if Congress doesn't appropriate them budgets for all that stuff, then it comes out of their own pocket. You know, I've got a question. I told you I'd get on a bunny trail and off track. Wall Street Journal had an article this week of the homes of the Democratic primary candidates. I know what these senators make. I know what the mayor of Midwest Town make. I, I, I don't know, but I have a good idea. Only Peter lives in a modest home. <laughs> how, how do you live in the salary of a senator and have a $5 million home? Or $40 million. Or multiple $5 million Or, or $40 million <laughs> in real estate assets. <laughs> It, it, that's Edwin Edwards' response. I guess at, I'm just a good investor, Sean. <laughs> I think I'm seeing a no comment face over here. I, 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 I always have to rein him in. I don't want to be political. So. Yeah. Um, millionaire. So you know what we're going to have you come back for, though? We haven't talked about. We talked about visiting places and things. It's Fort McHenry in Baltimore, the site where the, you know, Francis Scott Key witnessed the bombing that and wrote the what became our, our you know. National anthem. The, the. Star-Spangled Banner. That fort site, every American just needs to go sit at. And and visit the actual flag at the National Smithsonian. Dr. David Dean.